When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Being a parent can be really challenging. Child and Family Resource Network focuses on connecting pregnant parents and those with kids under the age of five with free support services to help them on their parenting journey. Everyone deserves someone they can turn to for help with parenting. Visit childandfamilyresourcenetwork.org today. Hello and welcome to episode 80 of And it's a very special episode, as it should be for episode 80. It was a tribute to Phil Chevron, recorded live in the Workmen's Club in Dublin last Sunday, the 24th. Um, And uh, in the research for this podcast, I really became aware of what a talent that Phil Chevron is um, uh, as a songwriter, as a writer in general and and i i kind of thought well why isn't there more made of i mean i would like to see him lauded a lot more as i said at the end of this podcast on the, at the end of the interview on the night um because some of the songs he's written are really amazing and uh I even the and the band the radiators from space or uh, they became the radiators and and they became the radiators from space again. Uh, it's just an amazing band and uh, you'd like to see more. Um, like I I just think sometimes that when we're we're uh, talking about the great songwriters or artists or writers that we have from Ireland, we always have to have some kind of somebody from outside of Ireland to notice how good they are first before we can uh, say ourselves as Irish people that they are great artists and it's just kind of this uh, oh oh, they're big in where in America or they're big in England oh they must be good then kind of vibe so yeah anyway Phil Chevron is an amazing guy uh, I never met him actually and uh, I uh, but just from talking to the uh, his friends and his sister, he just came across as just this incredibly, like a bit of a genius, to be honest. And uh, a man, he just loved theatre, music, and uh, was travelling all over the world to see shows. He was obsessed in a way, yeah. Um, so it was a really lovely evening, and I'd like to thank all the people who came in to see the live show and. Um, I'd like to thank all the guests as well as I did on the night. Um, so I hope you enjoy that. Well, I'm giving you 
such a travelogue recently. I am doing this intro from Dubai. Now I realise I could be doing this anywhere, and I could just say I was in Dubai, and uh, and yeah, and so what if I'm in Dubai anyway? But I just was booked to do yeah, booked to do a gig over in this Jumeirah Creekside Hotel, which. Uh, it's a lovely hotel, and I'm in here in my room after doing the gig, and it's nearly two in the morning, but it's two in the morning in Dubai, so I think that might be just 11 o'clock back home, so I can't sleep, even though I have to be up at five. I have to be up in three hours to uh, get a taxi at half five and to the airport. Uh, for sure, I'll sleep on the bleeding plane, you know what I mean? Uh, I've only been here a while. Uh, I've not really got. Uh, I've gone outside and you know dipped in the pool, and uh, the sun was going down even when I went outside. So I mean, you know, it's really weird when you fly so far, and then because of the time difference, you end up sleeping like during the day and stuff like that. That's uh, well, whatever. Uh, so, uh, good gig tonight with Rob Rice and Big Gary Little. Very uh, different type of characters. Big Gary Little from Glasgow. Rob Rice um, lives in... Oh, I don't know where he lives. Somewhere in the middle of England. Very nice man. And uh, we had a... Yeah, I had a nice show. So this is the second time I've come over here. So back, I was here in July and then... Uh, uh, I'll, now and hopefully again once again before Christmas so uh, that's the story there and uh, I, I've just come back up into the room and I've stuck the uh, Zoom recorder into a slipper to do this intro because I didn't f uh, bring my pop shield so uh, uh, you need to have one of them or else every time you say P which just happened there you see probably the uh, pa, 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 you get a big on the microphone so in order to stop that I've stuck this uh, recorder into one of the hotel slippers so I'm lying on the bed speaking to you speaking into a slipper uh, I hope you can get that kind of vibe that you as a listener you're in the slipper you're in a slipper and uh, uh, that's what's going on here so I better I better let you uh, get, let you go you want to listen to this podcast don't you of course you do. But I thank you all for uh, subscribing. And uh, before you listen to this, a uh, wonderful tribute to Phil Chevron. Um, I'm going to I'm gonna say, you know, you might be a first-time listener because uh, you might be a Radiators from Space fan or a Phil Chevron fan. You might be new to podcasts. So I presume you've found the podcast through some app or on itunes but if you can get please give me a review because that's basically if you're new to podcasts that's basically the currency that i it's i get from this i get uh good reviews i don't get it's a free uh podcast so if you can go on and give it five stars and a review i don't know what you have to do to do that i think you just log on if you listen to it this on your laptop uh, on itunes you can just do it on that even if you don't listen to it on your uh, laptop you're listening to this on a phone or uh, yes on a phone and on an app then 
just for the review's sake, log log on to iTunes on your laptop and give a review a f- and a five star. You know, I mean, give me five stars. And you know, if you're going to give two stars, well, don't don't do anything. Just save yourself the bother. I don't know how you'd be that fucking angry about anything anyway uh, that I I've done. So, uh, but you never know. You never bloody know, dear we are. Um, well, I'm going to uh, go to bed now. Well, I'm in bed. I'm going to stop speaking into a slipper. Uh, um, um, try sleep. I might just listen to somebody else's podcast. One that isn't too exciting. I listened to one last night about um, fecal transplants. It's where people are getting a lot of... Uh, because it's going to take too many, too many antibiotics that uh, people are becoming, the, this, the bacteria are becoming immune to them. And people are dying of stomach problems. But one way to counteract that is to get poo, healthy poo from a healthy person. Make a little shake out of it with some saline solution or whatever. Stick a tube down someone's throat into their intestines and... and uh, empty the poo into them and uh, that's that's how people get cured and so just if that's a little bit of advice there so if anyone's having a severe stomach problems don't do this at home no don't get your friend's poo and make you shake out oh is this disgusting oh okay but there's some advice there go to the doctor ask about fecal transplants mm, I don't know if they're available okay so uh, here we are um that might be an inappropriate introduction, but this is an amazing uh, podcast, a really nice chat. It's uh, with it's a tribute to Phil Chevron, and if you don't know Phil Chevron, go online, look for a song called Cleary's Clock, and it's an absolute brilliant song. Um, okay, have a listen. Toodle pep. <laughs> podcast is a tribute to Philip Chevron. Uh, for those of you who don't know, Philip Chevron was one of the great songwriters from Ireland. Uh, some of his songs you would know uh, from uh, television screen, uh, television screen from TV Tube Heart. Songs of the Faithful Departed from the album Ghost Town. Obviously from the Pogues, Thousands Are Sailing and Lorelei and the great song Cleary's Clock as well. Amazing. And his recording of Captains of the Kings is Absolutely amazing. So here to talk about his life and his work, we have Pete Holiday from the Radiators from Space, Steve Rapid from the same band, his uh, sister Deborah Blako, and Peter Sheridan. <laughs> so uh, oh, well, I'll start with you, uh, Deborah, because you would have obviously. Hi, Joe. You, you, how are you? You would have met him very early on. Very so. <laughs> at a very early age, I met him. Yeah. <laughs> And uh, well, uh, from a young age, was he was he art, uh, writing and was he into music? Uh, Philip's relationship with theatre, music, entertainment goes back to the age of two and a half. He was brought to a pantomime in the Gaiety with my parents, a 
And at the end of it, he had enjoyed it so much, he, had, he refused to leave. Mm. And the usherette, as they were then, had to bribe him with some popcorn from her tray and be told that he'd come back the next day. Philip came back to the theatre every day of his life since he loved it, loved musical theatre. And that progressed on to writing songs. And um, I was roped in to sing them. I was a, a useful leading lady, uh, unwillingly. And uh, the first song Philip recorded was with me. We actually got a slot in the then Trend studio. Um, they were training in an engineer and they needed somebody. So we had had a band called The Jangles. Uh, <laughs> what kind of band is this? Almost Partridge Family like. This would, <laughs> this would, uh, Philip would hate me for saying that. <laughs> but it was back in the early 70s, and um, Philip would have been about 13, I was about 11. And one of the songs he had written was called Rachel. It was about a cousin of mine. And so we went in, and this was recorded for the day and pressed, and we, we have it on vinyl. So that's Philip's first uh, brush with music. And you've got that on vinyl. Which have it on vinyl, and it's mm. since been transferred onto CD. So right, yeah. yeah. Uh, I'd love to hear that, but I know that's something very personal to you. It and is. I, there's a fair few of Philip's fans have asked me to share it but I'm it's something I'm kind of not ready to share yet and also Philip never actually let anybody listen to it in his lifetime so I kind of feel maybe it's something he didn't want mm -hmm. so yeah absolutely just for now I'll, I'll hold on to it <laughs> oh no absolutely yeah and uh so but in the house growing up there yeah. was there was a lot of music ah. always music yeah my dad was a huge theater and opera buff and comedy buff and you know um so we had a mixture we were very lucky to grow up with a mixture of opera operetta um george formby my dad was a huge george formby fan he wrote his uh, bibliography of his work um mm. and theater dad <coughs> was a hugely into acting and writing so and your father's written uh, some books about... Dad wrote uh, The Lost Theatres of Dublin, which was his last book, and Philip actually finished it after Dad died, oh. just literally just tidied it up and wrote the foreword. And he also wrote a biography of uh, Jimmy O'Dea and Noel Purcell, and as I said, of George Formby, so... That's incredible. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He, he started his writing when he retired from work due to ill health, so... It was an ill wind. <laughs> Did some good. Amazing. So he started writing when... Uh, In his 50s, yeah. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Cool. I'm cool. hoping to follow suit myself. Yeah, so <laughs> I, I was going to say there's hope for me yet. So. <laughs> uh, and uh, so do, would you remember then when uh, Philip maybe became influenced more by, what, I suppose, the punk scene? Yeah, well, it? Philip's first oh. influence that I remember were horse lips. Okay. I could sing note for note, start to finish, happy to meet, sorry to part, because I listened to it every day, all day, their first album. Wasn't that the name of it? Yeah, yeah. And then after that was, and he used to go out to Red Island to see them, and, you know, Horse Lips were a big name in our house. And then uh, Planksty, of course, and uh, David it? Bowie was this huge, oh, yeah. huge... Um, idol. Um, I remember a summer Philip spent out in the greenhouses in Rush 
while he was still at school, picking tomatoes mm. so that he could save the money to go over to, I think, I was trying to think about this, it was either Birmingham or Manchester to see David Bowie in concert in the early to mid 70s, probably early 70s. And um, he used to come home on the bus from Rush every day back down to Santry, literally turned green from picking tomatoes. Yeah. And he could never get the green off him, but oh boy, did he enjoy the concert when he eventually went. And, and what age was he then? Oh, again, 15-ish, 16. Wow. Yeah. So he headed yeah. off at, at the age of 15 yeah. on his own, on the boat, obviously. Yeah, yeah on the boat. And uh, yeah. it was wonderful. Later in life, he actually got to meet Bowie. Went to lunch with him in, uh, in New York. And uh, I'm told that he... Um, Bowie said to Philip, oh, um, I'm so pleased to meet you. Um, uh, I love your work. And Philip's reply when he was telling this to someone, he said to someone, he said, yeah, I don't know whether he knew my work, but sure, it was Bowie, I'll take it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so, uh, yeah, he, he, he idolised him. That's incredible. Yeah. Um, and then do you, when did he take on the name Chevron? His I think with, with the radiators. Yeah. Was it? Yeah. Before uh, that, he was Philip Ryan, our, our birth name. Mm. And then he became, for a short period, Philip Taylor. Yeah. Um, he, had a, he went through a phase of uh, a Neil Diamond phase. Uh, did he? <laughs> yeah. Actually. So it was possibly in homage to James Taylor or something <laughs> like that. But uh, he went through that phase. At I'm one afraid stage. I went through that phase as well. Yeah. I, I played a hot August night. Uh, uh, not the, a bad phase. The double you know? album. Yeah. <laughs> a lot. Yeah. yeah. Uh, he won a talent contest in Butlins with it. Doing Neil Diamond? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He wow. also won the fancy dress for the Artful Dodger. Really? Yeah, which I think is perfect for Philip. Absolutely. But yeah. if I was to cast him as anyone in fancy dress, I'd cast him as Peter Pan. Yeah. The little boy who never grew up. Yeah. Yeah. Boy. So incredible. So you must have, he's obviously very energetic and driven. Yes, from, from totally. Uh, I understand, I wasn't there, but I understand as a baby he never, ever slept. Mm. And once he started to read again at the age of almost three, but still two, he started to read, and my mother said she never had a problem with him at night after that. And I understand he used to walk the streets at night sometimes. We never knew it, but he'd be out the door and uh, gone. Now, I have a son myself who's here watching, and he's done that at times, so it wasn't from the ground he licked it. But uh, <laughs> Philip, yeah, he just, constant energy, creative. He just, the brain wouldn't stop, and yeah. he loved to be creating. And um, he had so much more left in him. So when he was dying, he was angry. He was so angry because he thought he had years left yeah. to write. I, there, were a, there, there were a lot of books in Philip which were never written. Mm. And oh my goodness, he was one of the most erudite people I know. And I would love to have read those books. But yeah. unfortunately, we'll never see them. But he's left a lot of... Brilliant stuff, you know. He has, and uh, can I just say at this mm. point that the people who were so important to Philip were his fans. Mm -hmm. He literally, like when he was in the Pogues, he ran the forum, he ran all the Facebook page. Philip loved his fans, and they were his lifeline. He, he created so that people could experience that. Mm. That was Philip. Brilliant. That's yeah. great. Uh, and so I did... I don't know, Peter, if you wanted to come in here, if, did, did you meet uh, Philip before the radiators? Would that be... When did the radiators fall? Oh. 
No, I wouldn't have met him before then. No. So first of all, he would have turned up at at, at an au- kind of an audition, was it? He, he, he auditioned for us. Um, Taylor, was he? Yeah, the first time. Audition, yeah. Oh, he's Philip Taylor. 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 <laughs> but he came along, and basically, we had a, a lead guitar player, Billy Moy, the late Billy Morley, a great guy as well, a wonderful guitar player. Mm. And Billy, we had been trying. Pete and I had been trying to get a band together for since about '75, you know, and we mm. were trying to explain what we wanted to do, which was basically this high-energy rock music that we really wanted to tap into and we couldn't get people who understood what we were trying to do so uh, Billy sort of lost interest and, and left so we, we put an ad in looking for a new league guitar player mm. and uh, Philip turned up this, we had this Pete and I were in the kitchen in my house and we had this put 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 little Honda 50 up the driveway this this large helmet with a, a mouth with a silver tooth and it comes in the door you know mm. and he mm. sits down at the kitchen table and he plays us two songs which both Pete and I knew were really good songs but he did, he failed the audition for the reason that he said he wasn't a lead guitar player. He was a rhythm guitar player, and we already had a rhythm guitar player and with Pete. So, <laughs> so um, a week later, two weeks later, I said, "That's is crazy. This is a guy who's so talented." Yeah, when you saw, and he, yeah. in the same, he'd just come back from London, and in the same week, he'd seen David Bowie at Wembley and the Sex Pistols in the Hunter Club. So, you know, we said we can't turn this down. So I rang him and said, "Would you have a go with the lead guitar?" And he said, yeah, sure, of course, I'd love to, I'd love to join the band. So he joined. And the, the first few months after that were crazy because Philip would play something that would be either excruciatingly awful or amazing on the, on the lead guitar. But the ironic yeah. thing is now Pete's the lead guitar player and Philip switched to rhythm guitar fairly, fairly quickly. So it sort of turned on in a nice way. Yeah. But he was amazing. And he decided, very early on, as Deborah said, he decided we all needed stage names. So we all became Pete Hawley, Steve Rappett, Bill Chevron, Mark Megaray, Jimmy Crash, you know, so... Brilliant names, <laughs> by the way. I mean, uh, much Thinking better. Back, I think we should have called, called ourselves Taylor. I think it would have been really good. <laughs> the name like of the, the band. Ramones, like the Ramones. Like yeah, the, the yeah. Taylors, you know. The Taylors, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sponsored by Louis Copeland, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, I, yeah, better names, you know, than you know, Johnny Rotten's a bit of a cartoony name, but, yeah. you know... You've, you've much cooler names, I have to say. <laughs> uh, uh, so, like, he had seen the Sex Pistols in... This is 76, we're talking about. In the, in the, in the, hundred, club. In the hundred Club, yeah. 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 So, I mean, how many Irish people would have even seen the No, Sex? a lot of people claimed to have seen them, but, you know, Philip actually went because he w- was picked up outside the Hundred Club and then hadn't seen... And he, went, he went over to see David Bowie and heard about the Sex Pistols and said, oh, got to go and see this band as well. So what, what more... There are, they're the pivots of our influences, the art rock and, and high-energy rock. And between those two was what we started out to do. Yeah. Um, so you were like straight onto the punk scene straight away. Because I mean, when did the Sex Pistols form? And that was that was only '76, right? Was it around the same time? Yeah. So yeah. you were. Me- how did you hear about the Sex Pistols? That was it in the it Enemy in or something. The like? Enemy, yeah. And mm-hmm. I immediately, the moment I saw the name and read what they played, I I, I lo- locked in straight away. I knew this was a band that was going to be important. Same with the Damned and the Clash. Um, yeah. I mean, we probably wouldn't have been a different name. We were called the Radiators before that happened. We, we didn't call ourselves a punk band. We called ourselves a high-energy suburban rock band. Okay. That's really what we were trying to, trying to do. The influences were the New York Dolls, the MC5, the Velvet Underground, all those kind of things. So we weren't R&B-based like the Boomtown Rats were, who came from that kind of Dr. Feelgood type of thing. We were, pop, pop we were rock scene. Yeah, we were going for much more, something a little bit more just hard and energy. And we weren't worried about um, being able to play at that stage. We were more, it was more important to us how we dressed. How we looked was was our, the most important thing to us at that point. Do you know what you did look amazing? Like, because if you see photographs of uh, the Boomtown Rats, they're kind of half not. 
properly dressed. They're, some of them are wearing flares. Yeah. <laughs> but you had it. You had the look. Oh, well, I'm, I have to own up. I mean, I've been through all those stages. I've been a, a mod, a hippie, a punk. You know what I mean? It's just that you latch into something that's got energy and something that's got something going somewhere. So, you know, you don't... I mean, Pete and I now... I mean, look at us now. We're not sitting here in leather jackets and, and things. For us, punk was never about how you looked and dressed. It was about an attitude of mind, what we want to do and where we want to go. Because we used to, we, we managed ourselves, we did all our own graphics, we did our own recording, everything, everything was done by us in the early days. Because what Philip and brought in, he brought, uh, Philip brought a bundle, he brought in uh, Mark Megray and Jimmy Crash, who he knew, uh, yeah. myself and Steve and uh, Philip, uh, Mark and Jimmy. So I think we rehearsed, we rehearsed in Steve's garage, so we were like a genuine Boda Friday garage, garage band. Mm-hmm. Uh, we rehearsed, uh, f- rehearsed for about uh, for a couple of weeks. Then we recorded the rehearsals, and then we said we'll wait a few weeks and record again. And if there's no improvement, we'll call it a day. Really? Yeah, we did. Yeah. So about seven weeks later, there was there was a marginal improvement. So we said <laughs> we'll, we'll keep going. But I think I think immediately there was immediately there was a good. Com- you know, I think it was just a good combination, you know, of of individuals, and th- you know, for for. For our entire career we were together, we, we just seemed to not only get on well as people, but get on well sort of musically, sort of complement each other. I think that the, well. the big point is that there was a massive respect, and still is between Pete and myself and Pete and myself and Philip. Mm. We, all, we all had a separate role within the band to do, but we, we came together on common ground to actually, because Philip's musical theatre background and, and Pete was a, a fan of T-Rex and you know, a lot of stuff like that, and I also liked a lot of different, different music, Sparks, things like that. So we, Steve we would often act as intermediary between myself and Philip, for example. <laughs> like, I think my and Philip never had an argument, but we had disagreements. <laughs> so I would say to Steve, will you say, oh, Philip, it's getting a bit theatrical, yeah. and then <laughs> so he would pass that message on. Then uh, Philip would maybe react and sort of. So that's how we sort of communicate on on sort of creative level, which is quite amusing, I think. Yeah, yeah. and uh, so similar around that same time, Peter. Yeah, uh, uh, yeah. You, you, you yeah, around seventy five, seventy six. Yeah, uh, Project Art Center found the home it's in now in Essex Street. It had moved from a place on Dandelion in uh, up at the top of Grafton Street. And there was a huge coterie of people around Project at that time, you know, like-minded souls who were trying to make something happen, an art centre. So you had Agnes Burnell, Alan Stanford, Chris O'Neill, Jim Sheridan, myself, Neil Jordan, Des Hogan, Alwyn Fuere, Virginia Cole, a whole gangs of people who went into that building. It was Dollard Print Works, and mm-hmm. then we took all the printing stuff out of it and we started to build seats for the theatre. I always remember Alan Stanford giving instructions because he felt he knew best how to build proper <laughs> seats for the theatre, you know. Yeah. So you'd have arguments about what was the proper way and what configuration should the seats be in because obviously the space that became the theatre, uh, the possibilities were, you know, you could put it as a proscenium archer in, in the round and we settled for in the round. But even then, and I'm getting to know Agnes Burnell, she kept talking about this guy, Phil Chevron, uh, if we were doing any musical stuff. He was fantastic, she said. He was great. Yeah. So over the next few years, Philip started to come in and out of project a lot. And he worked on a show called Liza Strata with Aggie. Um, and then he worked on several albums with Agnes Burnell. So he was a, he was, he was a guy with a growing reputation in th- the circles of project. And we did, of course, the big punk um, celebration in 78 called 24 Hours Dark Space, which was 
a this big celebration of punk rock, at which the band played, of course. Mm. Uh, and it was supposed to be 24 hours non-stop, and it ended up being 36 hours. Yeah. Um, and it was just an amazing um, celebration of all of the bands that were around at that time. Bands because like Theatrix or uh, Theatrix? Yeah, Theatrix, right. yeah, they were there, U2. U2. Um, DC9, maybe, or I don't know. Uh, it was who's who of people who were around doing right. Virgin Prunes. You know, everybody was, yeah. was into that art rock kind of area was there. Yeah. Philip, uh, you know, when I met him, the first thing I thought about him was is that he looked so young, you know, for somebody who was carrying so much knowledge because he kind of had an encyclopedic knowledge of Kurt Vile, whom I would have been interested in, but I didn't know a tenth mm. of what Philip knew mm. about Kurt Vile and Bertolt Brecht, whom I would have read a bit of. Mm. But Philip Chevron knew everything. Like... He just knew all the songs that those guys had written. Mm. And we started working on a, a, a version of the Truppany Opera set in Dublin called The Haypenny Place. <laughs> and it, there was no doubt, but there was only one person to write the music for that show, and that was Philip Chevron. Mm. And I'll never forget the first day he came up to my house, and he had a tape. Uh, uh, he had a, a cassette tape, and he said, I've written the first song, and I still remember it. This was 1978. Uh, and it went, something's rotten in the whole of Dublin town. Something's going on that isn't going round. Every touch we try, we only get the bird. Every door we come to, they say mum's the word. Bless the truth who is keeping secrets in. Two, three, four. Bless the truth who is going deeper in. Did you hear the one about the one, you know, the one I mean, the one that did the thing, you know the thing I mean, with the thing that was obscene? Jeez. How do I remember that 35 years later? <laughs> <laughs> I remember it because it was brilliant. Yeah, exactly. It yeah. was absolutely like, oh my God, this guy wrote this for our show. It's magnificent. It's like Kurt Vile wrote this. Yeah. It was like a modern version of Kurt Vile. And he wrote the most amazing songs for that show. And it's funny, Deborah, talking about, you know, people like, um, like George Farnby, because I grew up on George Farnby. My father taught me all the George Farnby songs. Like, the, these were conversations I would have had with Philip about popular entertainers. Like, I know a lot of people would think of somebody like Philip and think, oh, he must have been very kind of removed or he must have been kind of esoteric. But actually, he was the opposite. Like, he was mad into football. Like, he was an insane Nottingham Forest supporter. So he knew everything about the history of Nottingham Forest Football Club. And Nottingham Forest were a big team in the 70s. They won the European Cup twice. And their centre forward was a guy called Peter Witt. I'll never forget that. W-I-T-H-E. And, like, Philip knew everything about the history of that club. And I was mad into football. I was a Man U supporter. So we used to talk about football a lot. So he was very into... And, and Formby, you see, was the most popular entertainer. He was the Beatles of his generation. A lot of the songs that Formby did were like really popular in, in that kind of working class mm. English thing. I mean, um, there's a George Farnby song that goes, up the West End, that's the best end, where the nightclubs thrive, down into a dive you'll go. Mm. And that's a magnificent opening mm. to any song, isn't it? Mm. Like that's really, really brilliant. And Farnby had that, his finger on that kind of pulse. It's like, if you think England Seaside resorts, 1950s, women with big tits, and you know, all that. Farnby was tapping into all of that and kind of pushing the envelope even further, you know. And Philip was really interested in that. Mm. He was really interested in taking 
a traditional well-known form and just pushing the envelope as far as you possibly could. And certainly in the Hapney Place, which we premiered in 79, we worked on it in 78 and 79. And through that period, you know, I've never had a happier, more fruitful, loving relationship with a musical director than I had with, that, with Phil. He was, just, he was just a beautiful person to work with. He just, he had a sensitivity about him and he was connected in ways, as Steve said, to things that you'd never imagine. Mm. So you suddenly find yourself talking about the most odd things with him that he, was, that he knew loads about. Mm. He was one of those people who knew loads about lots of different things. So you could have right. these, these fantastic conversations with them. Yeah. And I mean, that's what you want when you're working with somebody on a show is you want somebody who's stimulating your own thinking and pushing your own thinking further than it's ever gone before. I mean, it should, it should, we should say that, you know, at the age of, I think it was 17, um, he produced an Agnes Burnell album. Uh, and, he, you know, he, this little, little guy, with, and, you know, he, the musicians on the album were Louis Stewart and Peter O'Brien. Absolutely renowned jazz musicians. Yet Philip was the producer and he was directing where this was going and how, how it was going to happen. In his teens. That's unbelievable. I mean, it's so kind of the opposite because punk was seen as these uh, idiot upstarts. Well, I mean, in the, in the media, in the, in, the, uh, news, in the tabloids. And yet there was just this really... Um, there was a mother who wrote, wrote to the paper one time giving out about us being called sort of louts when he said, you know, we're, really, we're very talented young men, you know. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. Um, there was uh, the Archbishop, the Archbishop uh, was giving out about them and my mother, there was a headline on was the evening press yeah. that evening, Punk Mum Slams Bishop. Really? <laughs> <laughs> That's the title of a song in there anyway. There is actually. Yeah. That's amazing. Do you know, do, Deborah, do you know how he, how he met up with Agnes Burnell? How did that come about? Uh, he was still at school, obviously, yeah. and yeah. Took, I am not sure of the first what got his interest. I think he knew about her and then realised she lived in Ireland. And, of course, for Philip, this was um, just incredible. Mm. So he mitched off school, went up to her house, knocked on the door, and basically, I'm paraphrasing, said, my name is Philip, what, what was he calling himself Taylor, at the time? Taylor. Pleased to meet you, and I'm going to produce a record for you. And being Agnes, she says, darling, come in. But <laughs> she was just... She, Agnes was such a the type... She, she would have time for everybody. And she, she thought, this guy, you know. But he did just that. Uh, that was the album Father's Lying Dead on the Ironing Board? No, no, one no. before that. No, one, one before, before that. that yeah. Okay, right. And uh, he... He convinced me to come out to me and said, look, I'm going to bring you out to meet Agnes because he put me in the back of his motorbike, which is a pretty hairy journey out to the house yeah. and said to her, this guy's going to design your album cover, you know, and the, the whole thing. So it all came together and we did it together. And, you know, it's amazing. It's incredible, it. yeah. Now, I was looking at the uh, kind of timeline on the website, the Radiator's website, and there's one, it seems like things change so quickly, like within one year. Like there's, I think in January it says, did a gig in the Mor Morans Hotel, o audience walks out. <laughs> and that was the Asgard Hotel. Oh, was it the Asgard? Oh, what sorry. happened was we were rehearsing on a Sunday afternoon and uh, Philip had given them my number and this guy rang to speak to Philip and said, look, the band that's playing tonight has cancelled and we can't find anybody else. Okay. And Philip had been chased everybody around town to get a gig and he said, can you come out and do the, do the gig? So Philip came mm -hmm. into the room and said, should we do this gig tonight, guys? And we said, we said, let's do it. Now, 
we were heavily into the early punk thing, so we had this zigzag logo that we used, um, like, a, like a Nazi armband. So we went to the venue in the Asgard, and we hung red banners all the way down the hall <laughs> with, the, with these circular things. That are, I should do. I should do, <laughs> absolutely. And the audience came in, and they sat and looked at us. We played two songs, and the entire audience walked out. There wasn't anybody but the, bar, the lady who ran around the bar at the mm. bar, and she said, you can stop playing now. We said, no, no, we've got a PA, we've got microphones. We carried on playing to an empty room our entire yes. set. But we, we knew if we had the, if the audience had walked out, we had something. Mm. We had some energy that was, you know, if they just sat there and looked at us and, bore, and talked to them, we'd, we probably would have felt we were defeated. But they walked we out, and within two, three gigs, we were, we were playing morons. Place was gone bananas. You Actually, know, Philip loved that. Uh, he, who was it he supported in the National Stadium? He was a warm-up act for somebody, and he did his um, Captains and the Kings, was it? And they booed him off the stage, and he was thrilled. <laughs> he loved it. He Jethro, said, "Jetro Tool, maybe." No, <laughs> but uh, he was actually pleased yeah. about that. Yeah, because it's a reaction, I suppose. Yeah. It's a reaction. I mean, yeah. the same thing happened to a degree when, when the guys were on tour with Thin Lizzy. That was a hard opening slot to play to Thin Lizzy fans. that again, yeah. Things, yeah. were, things went fine until we reached Glasgow. <laughs> yeah. And uh, it was the second gig of the Thin Lizzy tour. Now, prior to uh, doing the Thin Lizzy tour, we, we, were, we played a gig in Peterborough headlining the week that TV Tube Heart was released in all the music press. And there was something like 1,500 to 2,000 people there to see, to see, you. see us, you know. And literally the next gig we're doing, we started on this Thin Lizzy tour, which took us away from our audience, like sacrificial lambs, I suppose. And the, you know, the further you got away from London, the more resistance there was from, say, a Thin Lizzy audience to, the, to this punk thing, you know, where the Lizzy maybe benefited more than us because they were you know, per perceived to be sort of cool and trendy, you know, having a, a punk band on, on, uh, on supporting them. Mm. But we walked, literally walked on to booze. You know, we walked onto a stage in Glasgow to booze, you know, we were used to being loved, and all of a sudden, mm. these people were screaming obscenities at us, and uh, we were a bit like the rabbits in headlights, you know, and, and we didn't sort of respond maybe as we just it just caught us by shock, you know, mm. and I think our initial reaction after the gig, because when you did like a half an hour set, was we want off this tour, you know, mm. but Adrian Hopkins promoted, like, just stay with it, stay with it, stay with it, you'll be grand. So we had a big think about this, you know, we said, you know we should have really been prepared for anything, you know? And uh, so it, it was, wasn't too bad until we got then to Birmingham. And when we hit Birmingham, it was exactly the same. All the partisan cities didn't want to know about punk. So mm. when we walked on stage in Birmingham, it was the same thing, like this, you know, that negative uh, uh, audience before we even walked on. But this time it was like, fuck you. One, two, three, four, bang. And played for half an hour. And we turned it around to, to moderate applause, which was a great... <laughs> I think triumph, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Plus, there was someone from yeah, the melody maker was there as well. <laughs> All right. But the, the closer we got to London, the more the, I suppose the easier it was, really. But we we, mm. we learned a lot of things. I mean, you do, you know, you, know, you do actually realise that you know if you're playing a very very large venue without the support, say, of visual cameras and you know big mm. screens, you're just a little dot, you know. So we we had to learn to maybe exaggerate our movements. We actually believe in that. We started wearing uh, eye uh, liner and lipstick, just so we know that people could actually make out a feature. Wow, well, it's like uh, working on stage yeah, in theatre. Yeah, really, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah so we, you know, we, we sort of felt quite comfortable doing that, really, you know. Yeah. And then, it, it, so we did 28 gigs in 30 days. And I can assure you, the band that finished that tour was completely different to the one that started it. Like we did one gig, we had one day off. 
and we did our own headline gig in in uh, in London, and some people from the record company uh, came and they said, like, we had them pinned to the back wall, you know, because we were in this projection mode. And we realised after that we should have been like that from day one anyway, to be honest, do you know what I mean? But mm. you just learn. As you go, yeah. Yeah, because we were sort of isolated. Being in Dublin, we were sort of isolated from the main, I suppose, inverted commas, punk movement in, in England. Even though, you know, our our story, our, our content was very different to, to, to the manifesto, let's say, uh, the British punk fans had, you know, we we had our, our own issues, which some of the journalists picked up on, to be honest, you know. I mean, this, it's also, sorry, it's also, this was a huge stage, whereas pri pre previously we'd played in other small clubs mm -hmm. um, with no sort of feedback or no voice. When you walk on a big stage and you've got monitors and everything else, it's a, t it's a different experience because you're kind of half looking at what, amazed by what you're actually hearing. When the la my last gig with the band before I left originally was Daily Mount Park. And, you know, it's the first time you walk on stage, you, you go into a microphone, you go, <laughs> you can hear this coming across. What's going on here? Yeah, it's really weird, you know, because we, we just fought against the sound and everywhere else we played. Right, yeah. And uh, you had to leave Ireland because of, a, well, I think you weren't getting booked because of a stabbing that happened at a UCD gig and which kind of fed into this whole idea that punk gigs were violent Dangerous, occasions. Yeah, or, yeah. Um, I presume, it was, well, it was... It's, it's well, it, look, an incident happened, you know, unfortunately someone uh, died because of the incident. And strange enough, all the people that we, we soon found out who our real friends were. You mm. know, there were people that were quite supportive but that suddenly didn't want to know. You know, they dis suddenly distanced themselves from us. So we just had to sort of carry on. No one would come near us or book us or do anything. And then I think the... The first book in we got Steve will tell it, which was out in Kilcullen, wasn't it? Not? Yeah, it was in a, it was in a, a mar and once again the same story. It was a marquee tent, and Horselips were booked to play the event, mm. and Horselips had made a rule they wouldn't play any more tents. So, for whatever reason, we were the replacement act. You know, there was there was like Joe Dolan, whatever, the Radiators from the Space, Ireland's only punk band, and then there was another show band the night afterwards. Really? So we went down. Um, <laughs> we went down in the van and we went down there. And it was actually great fun because it was a, there was a fun fair there as well. So it was a big wheel and there was dodgems. So we spent the afternoon going around in dodgems and doing the whole thing. So I went up to the promoter and says, well, you promised us a light show or a, you know, lighting. And he says, oh, hold on a minute. And he went back to say, this is true. And he went back to took a Red Bull bat and plugged it in the one socket <laughs> and, say, and said, there. You know? <laughs> and we said, okay. Yeah. So we, we all got dressed up. It was all ripped T-shirts and the whole thing. And we went on stage and we started full on into, into the set. And we were like 15 minutes in the set when the guy walked on stage and put his hand up. And I said, what's going on? And he says, I've got to do the uh, raffle results now. <laughs> At nine o'clock or whatever. So we had this most, most serialistic thing I've ever seen. We were standing outside the stage when a troop of nuns came on stage with plates of sandwiches and tea <laughs> for this guy standing outside the stage who just wanted to play. So we had this tea and sandwiches and went, went back on and carried on with the set. You know? This is incredible. I, know, I think we knew we were forgiven then. I think. So <laughs> yeah. we could carry on with our career. Right, yeah. It's incredible. Though. I mean, were you that was that before you went to London? This kind of yeah, this time. Yeah. yeah, but it was during um, this period. But, that but it wasn't long later. Strange, strange yeah. enough, because because mm. of the incident, let's call it the incident, mm. uh, that got us to be get focused on writing material and recording TV Two Part. So mm. uh, because uh, the you know there was a lot of inactivity, mm. uh, we we had just released the single, uh, so. Chiswick Records decided to bring forward the recording of the album. So we recorded TV Tree Park during that uh, 
I think it's very early 77. Yeah, look mm -hmm. at early seven or just sorry, in mid 77. So it was in mm -hmm. the studio, record, mix, out, released. You know, so the songs that would comprise and make up TV Chubbuck were being written between uh, November 76 and mm -hmm. sort of June, July 77. That's where all those songs uh, came. You know, every Sunday we'd you know, have ideas for songs and just write them out. And then I think then when we suddenly start hearing Enemies by Philip, uh, we know. Yeah, this is good. <laughs> this is good. Yeah. yeah, this is good. And and did you have a, a, a Sunday World song? Is that about? That's um, obviously about Sunday well, it's World. It's based well, on it. It's based on it. See, we had this great knack of of. Uh, and I still we we still implement it today with the new band. So it's a smoke and mirrors strategy, do you know. Mm. And uh, we used to write our own reviews for gigs because no one was interested in coming and writing reviews. So we said, well, fuck it, you know, we, let's just write our own, you know. Yeah. So there was a magazine called Scene Magazine. Uh, I can't remember the guy who ran it. They eventually evolved into into Hot Press. Uh, Ken Ken Ryan. Ken Ryan, yeah. And uh, Philip just said, uh, ha you, Philip used to write these reviews. You know, uh, I saw the most amazing band last night called the Radiators from Space. Blah 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 blah. That's a, and he signed it up as Rodney Bellingham. So if you ever see <laughs> a glowing live review for Rodney by Rodney Bellingham, you know it's Philip. And yeah. Ken knew. And it was good, yeah. He, he you know, published it, and yeah. he it down. so what he also did, Philip did, was uh, he wrote to the Sunday World. Yeah, you know, we knew it was the biggest selling paper in Ireland. So Philip wrote to the Sunday World as a distressed mother, saying, uh, "My my daughter arrived home in floods of tears from seeing <laughs> this disgusting outfit called the Radiators from Space, who had all sorts of shenanigans on stage, including." Uh, molesting a guitar with a vibrator, blah, blah, and this, that, and the other. And uh, I think the next gig... The Sunday World with it. The Sunday World with it. Sam Smith. Yeah. <laughs> Big article. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Half a page. Yeah. You can't buy stuff. That stuff yeah. you know? Well, he, he actually said, he rang me up and said, um, if you go along with our outrage, we'll give you a front cover. But we said, well, no, we're, we're actually a serious band, and we want to... So they gave us a piece, but... Sam Smith rang me, which is never... You know, a journalist ringing you and telling you what he's actually written. And I can remember the first lines. Like, you know, he said, the crop-haired lead singer spat his venom into the microphone. And then he said, at the end of the thing, he said, I remember the audience was shouting, my lie was good. I said, our audience wouldn't know where my lie was. Never mind, it was being good. But, you know, <laughs> <laughs> it was good journalism. So he said, yeah, go with it, run with it, you know? Yeah. Oh, that's amazing. And he was still working at the time as well. So we had to pick up the flak... The, you know, the following week for must been all over the Sunday world. And I think people giving me personally, I remember people giving me a wide berth, you know? Yeah. This, this complete maniac that was in the Sunday and world. Just the, the funny thing is, the following week or two weeks later, the News of the World did an even more, you know, and they said these bands are worse than the sex business. They use blasphemy and sexual in, in their stage act, you know? So, you know. That's amazing. That that's incredible. You, you to can't do. buy that, yeah. No. Brilliant. <laughs> and uh, were you aware of that, uh, Peter, that he, he could. Yeah, well, I would have been aware. Of, I would have been aware <laughs> of the impact the Radiators yeah. had, you know, as a band, just because yeah. I was I was as much into music as I was into theatre, yeah. you know. Yeah. I mean, music was always a huge part of what we were trying to do in Project Art Centre, you know. Yeah. So while we were doing plays, I mean, even when we did plays, like I wrote songs into plays because I was very interested in yeah. in music and song, and just like Philip, like something like the Captains and the Kings would have been meat and drink to me, me and my dad used to sing that one, you know, and, and so a lot of those kind of songs, we, we, we would have shared an interest in the, in the Dublin ballad, the Dublin street ballad, and, you know, for example, you, you know, the Radiators were the first band I ever knew to write something about Ulysses, 
you know, the Kitty Ricketts song, She's a Prostitute from the book. And so, you know, to be able to be having a conversation about a song that was actually celebrating a prostitute from, from, from that book, from James Joyce's book. Mm -hmm. And then I was, I remember talking to Philip about um, Dicey Riley because Dicey Riley was a Kamalia song that people sang in Dublin, but she was actually a, a prostitute as well from the Monto, mm -hmm. you know, and, and, and the lyrics in that, which obviously predated Ki Kitty Ricketts by a long, long way, was the same thing of, you know, talking about the life of a prostitute and mm -hmm. poor old Dicey Riley is taken to the sup. Poor old Dicey Riley, she will never give it up. She's an alky. Right, yeah. You know, but, but when people sing it, they're not kind of conscious of that, you know. It's just, it becomes this yum, 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 and it doesn't mean anything. And in a way, Philip was as interested in reclaiming meaning for things yeah. as I was myself. In other words, a lot of this music or a lot of these things that we lived around in Ireland or in Dublin particularly, um, they just become kind of part of the culture and sort of people forget where they came from and what they're about and what they're sort of trying to, to tap into. Mm. And he was, he was somebody that was keenly interested in making or remaking that connection between the art form mm -hmm. and the lived reality. So it, it wasn't a divorce thing. You know, so the plays that we were doing, we were trying to touch into a social and political reality. Like when we did the Hapenny plays, for example, the opening scene has these crates uh, these big crates, and on the crates is written, Libya, handle with care. Mm. Now, in 1969, guns were imported into Ireland by Charles Hohey, and on the crates was written, Libya, handle with care. So the audience knew, when we put them up there, that we were talking about the arms shipment, which became the arms crisis in Ireland in 69 on. So McHeat, in the version that we did, was Charles Hohey. You know, and... Philip would have been really, really interested in that. Mm -hmm. In the same way that when we did Oedipus Rex, we did a version of Oedipus Rex, Oedipus was Brian Faulkner, who was the, 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 the Prime Minister of Northern Ireland, who introduced internment in 74. You know? So we were interested again in making those connections and inviting the audience or forcing the audience or doing something to make people see a relationship between art mm -hmm. and the lived reality. Because so much of what happened or what went for art in the Ireland that I grew up with was bullshit of the highest order. And it still is in many respects, mm. you know. So the people who are trying to forge a connection, who are trying to make the art speak about things that are important, mm. still get ostracized, still get sidelined. Yeah. It's still difficult to get in there. So that I respond to people who are trying to do that stuff, you know. Well, I think Philip was always really depressed that uh, you know, throughout the band's career, we were very rarely picked up by an arts program or anything other than, you know, the band was largely ignored in the Irish press and is still largely ignored in the Irish press. And we just re-released TV Chip Art 40, you know, years afterwards. Yeah. The, all the reviews we've been getting have been amazing, but you would think <coughs> that somebody here would say, this is well, well worth documenting what happened in 40 years between them, but nobody has even come near us to talk about yeah, it. It's amazing. And even, even at the time, say when Ghost Time came out, that was, you kind of even lost your own audience then, did you? Like the audience that you liked uh, TV two parts. Yeah, couldn't. well, it's a, it's a strange one because uh, we recorded Ghost Town, but it wasn't released for at least, I think, almost a year, mm. a year later. And if it had, I think if it had been released uh, at the time, you know, within you know, the normal period, I think it would have been amongst sort of the first phase two of the punk album, mm -hmm. you know, where Elvis Costello 
and Blondie and acts that were a bit more melodic and, and layered sort of sound. But it was just, it was just, you know, I, don't, I won't go into it, but it was just, it was just delayed for over a year. And uh, uh, but when it did come out, then uh, I suppose it had lost a bit of impact. It was one of sort of many albums at the time. Now we did do a gig in the Electric Ballroom. With uh, it, it was supposed to be it was supposed to be the radiators, the undertones, and stiff little fingers, and the undertones had to had to pull out, understandably, because I think they just charted or something like that. So it just ended up just a gig with ourselves and stiff little fingers. Mm. And uh, when we came on, Billy, we had brought Billy in to sort of play lead guitar, and we decided to perform uh, first gig in England for maybe <laughs> over a year, and we decided to. Do play Ghost Town and we were bottled off stage. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. It's just they just didn't want to know. So we knew uh we knew that we'd have to find find a new audience then, you know. And and maybe that's what we wanted was a new audience anyway, you know, because at this stage, you know, the whole punk scene had become almost like, you know, very commercialized anyway. Do you and know cartoonish. So we were prepared, yeah. You know, we were always prepared to walk on stage and be laughed at. And we were always prepared to walk on stage and be spat at. And we were always prepared to go on stage and have bottles thrown at us. Because we knew if we were, if that did happen, we were doing something right, you know. Because the opposite mm. of that was also 40 years later, people still talk about it. So, you know, we've done something right as well, I think. You know? I mean, the other thing, even for me, and I was a member of the band, was the, there's basically six months between the recording of TV Due Apart and Ghost Town. So yeah. that development, that change, that happened in that six months period of time. And had the reaction to that album been better than what it was and the band had it stayed together, I think they, the, what, what they would have become after that would be unthinkable, really amazing to, you know, to get on what was happening. You but two would have been supporting mm. us in Crow Park. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. no, we wouldn't have played Crow Park because they had no way. How did you get in contact with Tony Visconti for that album? So we were offered the Thin Lizzy tour, uh, as opposed to we were offered it and uh, we, we thought about it. Yeah, all right, we'll do it, yeah. yeah. Uh, and then the one of the reasons why we did do it was because we knew that Tony Visconti, who had produced most of our record collections, was working on Within Lizzy on Live and Dangerous. And uh, we said we'd do it, but we want to meet Visconti. Mm -hmm. And uh, fair play to that, uh, towards the end of the tour, we did uh, there was a, a Hammersmith Odeon gig. Uh, and there was an after-show party, and we met Tony. Now, it turned out that, I suppose, for, for Tony Visconti's career, it was a good move for him to maybe work with a punk band, you know? Because, mm. you know, he was, known, he was sort of a glam rock guy, you know? And uh, so it was a it'd be a good move for him. But he told us after, he said, he just couldn't bring himself to... They all wanted him, but he said, I just couldn't bring myself to work with people that couldn't really sing. Mm. That was his big thing. And when he saw us playing with Thin Lizzy, uh, he just went, uh, they can sing. <laughs> and they can do harmonies as well, which is a bonus. Yeah. So we met him after, and he just said, go away for Christmas. We were coming back to Ireland for Christmas, and he said, uh, I need you to write a couple of hits. So, you know, if Tony Visconti... If Tony Visconti asks you to write a couple of hits, you, you know, you, you're duty-bound to uh, apply, <laughs> John. Yeah. So uh, I wrote Million Dollar Hero, and mm. Philip wrote Walking Home Alone Again, which I thought were two definite hits, mm. you know. And they, 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 you know, 
when you heard those, he just he says, "I'm in," you know, "I'm in." Yeah. And uh, it was a it was a great experience, and I think particularly when uh, Tony started to hear the songs that Philip had, you know, some of the songs that Philip had put together, like "Kick Your Records." Mm-hmm. He just knew it was it was something different to maybe what he 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 maybe thought he might get. Mm-hmm. But uh, at the same time, his contribution can't be underestimated. I think that he totally tuned into Philip's songs and to my songs, mm-hmm. and really helped us to uh, learn to serve the song in the studio. You know, whatever the, so- the song's going to be crying out for stuff in the studio. You know, and, and you do get this phenomenon sometimes when you listen to songs at a rough stage and you can hear things that should be there. He said, uh, and he convinced us that, that uh, you know, that's what it's, it's just crying out for, this stuff. You know? So it really helps us, especially you know, things like the, the string arrangements and, and stuff like that. You know, when you've got sort of a, the same string section that played on Electric Warrior by T-Rex and you're just sitting there with a big smile on your face. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and... When we when we had recorded the album uh, and what we did, we, we invited a lot of journalists over from from Dublin, you know, uh, like uh, uh, whose names I can't remember. Uh, uh, Joe Breen, Joe Breen, uh, Harry Doherty. I think yes, yeah, so there's about half a dozen of them. They came to they came to London. They came down to the studio, which is in in this after Shaftesbury Avenue. Uh, and strangely enough, we we did feel sort of in exile. Yeah. You know, like we felt that we you know, we couldn't have recorded this album in Ireland, really. Strange enough, you know, it was really about. It, it was, to be honest, it could have been about any city in the world, but it was specifically, I suppose, language was was Dublin, you know. Yeah. And uh, uh, when we played the album back, you know, there was you know the album, the, the final sort of s- little synth noise at the at the end of Dead the Beast, Dead the Poison faded out. There was literally like uh, complete and utter silence, and we looked around and they. We're gobsmacked, you know. Yeah. Unfortunately, they had to wait a year to hear it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> to hear it again. So you know, yeah. it took a bit of the wind out of our sails, really. And uh, so it really kind of broke up the band. Really, the lack of uh, success of that album was it? Yeah. Well, kind of. Yeah. Well, it, it just never got a fair shot, really. You know, it's mm. it just if it had come out, I, I can't go into why. Just why it didn't mm. come out, but you know, without. Uh, but nothing to do with really the record label as such. But it was, it was. Uh, I, I honestly feel if it had come out in its time, when when it did come out, for example, in England, uh, I think most of the British journalists just did not have a clue. You know, if you look at the reviews, uh, a lot of the local press, a lot of the local press, like the Portsmouth Evening Echo, you want to see the reviews that go down that they put out. They were totally knew what it was about. Yeah. You know, and they said this is just a mega, mega record. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Even a year after it was due to come out, you know, do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it still is. It's, it's, it still is a mega record. Absolutely, I, mean? I think so. Do you know what I mean? Incredible. And Deborah, do you think Philip felt any bitterness towards what how that didn't work out? Or, or um, or? I don't think so. I, I think Philip no, no. just took his life as it came. Yeah, yeah. There were opportunities. If something didn't work out, he went another way. He, yeah. He was always willing to just do the next thing. Um, didn't look back, just carry on. Life's too short for regrets, and um, it's turned out to be just that bit shorter. <laughs> yeah. But, um, you know, he just got on with it. Well, Hans Zimmer produced a couple of singles. That was, uh, you know, the last things we did for the, for the record. Oh, the last two, yeah, yeah, yeah two so singles. You know. yeah. So, again, like, you know, Hans was just a, a programming keyboards for the bubbles, and 
uh, he just suddenly came along. He was younger than us, and yeah, we obviously know Hans Zimmer is living. The very famous, so yeah. So Hans, uh, we changed his way of thinking. I think about how. Uh, can I tell a story about the studio? Absolutely. Well, so we're in the studio, uh, and yet another studio with Hans Zimmer, a German producer, a Jewish engineer, and an Irish band. And uh, we had in this fa very fancy studio, Air, I think it was, where we seen for the first time we'd seen these uh, uh, motorized faders on the desk. And then we went for lunch break, uh, and I just put these little matchsticks on the faders so they looked like tanks. <laughs> so. When uh, Hans came back and pressed play, I just said, oh, look, the invasion of Poland. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he, he was not amused. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> but, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I also think Hans was probably very impressed because when Hans came back here this year to That's play correct, absolutely. in the, oh, yeah. uh, in the old two, is it called? Yeah, yeah. The three yeah. arena. That's right, yeah. Uh, he mentioned from the stage. He dedicated the gig to Philip. To Philip yeah. and the right, radiators. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And we had a great, it was actually a great working relationship. You know what I mean, it was mm -hmm. very, uh, great fun. And, you know, we, we learned a lot from Hans as well, I think. You know, and, and I think certainly Hans and Philip uh, certainly kept in touch over the years. You know, their paths crossed many times, you know. Mm -hmm. So it was good. You know? And my last communication to Philip, his, long, his, his last big wish was that we record a fifth Radiators album. That's what he wanted to do. And he said, even if I can't sing, I want to be part of it. And I want to go back to where we're in the first album and us all write together as a team and do that way. But unfortunately, it's sadly, it never happened, which yeah. is you know, a real big loss to us. The pity. Um, we, have to keep, we, we, we don't have much time left. But let's, let's talk about the Pogues, maybe, and how, how he got involved <laughs> with, the, with the Pogues. Deborah, would you... Uh, well, Philip was working in Rock On. Mm -hmm. um, Ted Carroll of Ace Records mm. uh, was running Rock On. And um, basically, to cut a very long story short, the Pogues used to come in and out to the record shop and Philip mm. was asked to join. That was how how mm. he got, got going there. I think yeah. he came as... He joined as a replacement for somebody who was ill initially. Yeah. He played the banjo, Gen which he said he couldn't do. But um, he got on so well with the band that they, they kept him on as the, as the rhythm guitar player in the band. Right. I was just wondering, uh, would, would he have felt frustrated in the Pogues because of the fact that he wasn't contributing music, uh, well, s uh, songs? I did ask him that, you know, mm. because, I mean, Shane McGowan is an, an amazing songwriter, mm. but then they have another songwriter in the band who's equally amazing. Mm. But um, as Deborah said, Philip took his role, and that's what he was there to do. Mm. So he was writing for other things. I mean, there's so many other projects that he wanted to do. Like, he went to Texas at one point to, to record a solo album. Um, and I don't know. I believe some tracks were recorded, but I've never heard of them since. Mm -hmm. He worked with uh, Doug Sam's son, Sean. Um, and that's what, what he wanted to do. And he wanted to do a solo. He had so many ideas. I mean, he, as you know, he wrote the musical Jack Rooney, which is about an Irish boxer who... who no. Yeah, he wrote a mu complete musical. He acted as musical director yeah. on Druid's Playboy, which opened in... Shaftesbury Avenue, they opened, yeah, yeah. yeah recently. Yeah, they so hit one of the Silver Tassi was another one. Sorry, the Silver Tassi as well, yeah. Mm -hmm. Did you ever think of bringing the, the musical out, the Jack Rooney soundtrack? Um, did, did you ever think about that? Uh, he wrote that with um, Declan Lynch, Declan Lynch, Lynch right, of yeah. who writes for The Independent, and yeah. uh, they worked on that um, in Philip's house in Nottingham, yeah. um, all of which I have, but... Uh, 
he had there were a, f a few funny stories about looking for funding for it and that, but uh, it yeah. came to nothing really. I, I have copies of it. You know, he yeah. gave me CDs, and yeah. I, I just think it's something that's good enough to release. It I is. Yeah. I think he it did. Yeah. He did demos songs. of the songs that he wrote, and Ronnie Drew sings one. That's right. Kirsten yeah. McCall sings another. Yeah. Yeah. And he sang some, and he got other people in to do it. And he told me that he'd been to every possible avenue. He'd been to all the famous theatre producers in New York and London, mm. and they just said the time isn't right. So he shelved it because, yeah. as Deborah said, he moved on. He just said, well, you know, this may have come out sometime or other, but at the moment I'll do something else. But he did. The whole thing was done. You know, the story was there. The songs were there. Mm -hmm. You know, it just never happened. And this was during the Pogues' time he was writing this. Or yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And look, but Deborah, you were saying, like, when he realised he hadn't long left to live, he was angry that he hadn't mm. written more. But do you think that maybe... He rested on his laurels a bit during the Pogues. I, I think oh. possibly um, on the more commercial side, yes. Mm. I, I think um, I think Steve and Pete have said before, Philip wrote when he needed to write. Mm. And there was an he album chose his moments very yeah. carefully. You know, if he submitted mm. a song yeah. to the Pogues, I, I think if he gave them a song, it, they would do it. You know, so so okay. he, yeah, he wouldn't give them a song with, with, with even a remote worry that they might reject it. I'm fairly sure he chose his moments very well. If you look yeah. at three that I can think of, there's Laura Lie, which I think is, to be honest, I think it's a radio song, to be honest. I think we need to reclaim that. Because <laughs> uh, it is sort of, a, sort of a punky type of song. Yeah. Uh, Thousands of Sailing, which I suppose everybody is, is the one everybody knows. Absolutely. And, and weird enough, when he was in the Pogues, I think he wrote Under Clearish Clock for there was a reissue of Ghost Town. That so Under Clearish Clock was recorded separate from Ghost Town many years later, yeah. and it, it, it appeared then on a, on a I can't remember what year now. There was a, a early nineties sort of reissue of Ghost Town where we added two songs, two songs, Plura Bell, a song called Plura Bell. It's a great song, well, well. yeah. and Don't Under Clearish Clock as well. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I just but wonder. It's just struck me uh, talking about Philip here and the diversity of things he did. If success is is the, the the payment, would he have had more success if he had focused on either his theatre or his music, or you know, if he had focused rather than spread his talents? Mm. I think he would have been frustrated. I don't think yeah. he would have yeah. set himself yeah. on that one, the one task. I think he just wanted to move into different areas. But yeah. we were talking about his, his background. When we did, uh, we reformed and we recorded the album Trouble Pilgrim. Um, mm. It was surprising when I said to Philip, "Have you got any songs?" He said, "No." He had nothing. He hadn't got. He just wasn't writing songs and storing them up like some songwriters do. Yeah. He had nothing written. He said, "I will write the songs now." And right. the next, when we set a date to record, the next six months he wrote some amazing songs. You know, and he wrote like he, the concierge, one of the songs on the album. He wrote specifically for me to sing, with my voice in mind. And even you know, the day he was, we were going to record it. He was up in his room writing, and he'd come down, and he'd write the next verse. So he'd and he wanted to change things like that. He was so precise and professional about what he wanted from the from those songs to do. Mm -hmm. And um he would be having a field day with Donald Trump now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, how you would, yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> the one thing uh, you you were saying about Philip and, and his encyclopedic knowledge, Peter, of, of of things. When I was clearing out his house in Nottingham and subsequently in my mother's house she recently passed away and the amount of books and research Philip had amalgamated on every subject under the sun. Mm. So when he took on a project, he he knew everything about it. Peter, you were saying about the Bertolt Brecht and Kurzweil. He knew everything. Once, once he decided to do something, 
Mm. That's what he spent his nights doing. He never slept. <laughs> yeah, and, and uh, I think, Steve, you were saying uh, at his funeral there were different groups of people that he knew but never knew each other. Yeah, we didn't know each other. We, yeah. You know, there's the Pogues crew, there was the radio people, there was the theatre people, there was other people he met in different capacities. Yeah. And we all looked at each other and said, who are all these people? And, you know, Deborah was the one that sort of bring everybody together and say, well, this is this is this person, you know. Yeah. Uh, people that Philip had been written to, had been writing to and been in conversation with, but we, we didn't know about those. He kept right. he kept us, we were his, that band that we wanted to do. And, this place and indeed he kept his family separate from, I mean, some of Philip's best friends, other than Pete and Steve, who he had very close relationships with, friends who would have been on the same wavelength as him, I never even knew existed. Mm. It was only after he died and people started getting in touch with me and then for a few of them, very weird experiences of being pushed towards these people who I didn't know existed mm. and I found them. So Philip compartmentalised his life to the extreme mm. and never the twain shall meet. I think in the end of the day, He's, he is one of the most underrated arts people in every area that Ireland has ever produced and is just not recognised for what he's done. It's about time it was, and it yeah. hopefully it will be. Should name a bridge after him, I think. A bridge? <laughs> <laughs> Chevron Bridge, yeah. yeah. Joe O'Connor, yeah. Uh, and uh, just one other thing, uh, you were saying when you were clearing his house as well, you found that he had booked flights Yes, well, uh, well three Philip years in advance. Yeah, uh, I, I, I think Philip's biggest love was musical theatre and theatre. And, and he had, when he died, and I had the awful task of going through his papers because I felt it was an intrusion on him. He was such mm. a private person. I hated doing this. <laughs> As I was doing it, I was saying, please forgive me, Philip, I have to do this. Yeah. But I was going through stuff and found tickets for theatre, musical theatre, opera. I found airline tickets. I found hotel bookings for a year after his death. He was that dedicated to theatre. Some days there would be three shows he'd be going to. And mm. he had the energy because he was Philip. Yeah. He just, he lived for theatre. That's incredible. Yeah. yeah. Amazing. I was talking to mm. Peter here about Philip's um, programme collection from theatres. Now, there was only only three years of it in my mother's house and to each programme he had stapled the ticket for the show and he would put a one or two line review of what he thought and he had a five star system of review and um, kind of having gone through the first 200 I got to know what the stars meant so if you got one, two, three or four um, I'd say out of the first 200 I gave up after 200 um, there was just less than a handful ever got a five-star rating. Mm -hmm. But having said that, he was extremely fair. And even if he hated a show, sometimes it got a star for whatever, costume, sets, effort, yeah, mm. uh, ingenuity, whatever. But just, he was very fair. Very and he always person. gave people a chance. Yeah. 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 Um, so you mentioned the song uh, under Cleary's clock there. And... First of all, the brilliance of that song is that it's about a, year, a man meeting another man under clear slot, where, where couples would meet for a date. Sorry? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And uh, when he came out, it was like a brave thing to do, wasn't it? I know it was a different Ireland than today. It was, it was a, a country where I think... It was very brave. 
very, very brave. I, I think it's Philip's greatest work. You know, certainly, certainly radio-wise. Uh, I, I just think it's, it's a brilliant love song. Yeah. Period. You know, uh, yeah. And as it unravelled in the studio, you know, it, it, I went, God, you know, he's really showing a part of himself that maybe he's never done before. I think it's know? the closest he's ever come to revealing anything of yeah, himself so, to yeah. anybody because. I think I was saying to you, Joe, earlier... That gives it its power. Yeah, he never... I would say I never knew Philip, although I lived from day one with him. I don't think anybody ever knew the whole Philip. Mm. I think Philip knew who Philip was, but nobody else did. So, under Cleary's clock, which I must, must say, Pete does a fabulous version of. He's the only person, as far as I'm concerned, who can no sing No pressure it. there, then. Yeah, <laughs> okay. No, I've seen you on this stage perform it, uh, and he does an amazing... Maybe I should do it now, should I? I think, Pete, you should do it now. <laughs> one, two, one, two, all right. Make me sound like Elvis, will you? his place under clear his clock tonight at eight I'm gonna wait oh god he's late he stood me up next bus to Anlar is his for sure ten minutes more and it will bring 
My love's a little love that does not have a name Yeah, thanks, Pete. Um, so, thanks for coming along. Like when I was researching this podcast, I yeah, I, w- I, I was blown away by the genius of this man, and uh, and it's in, it's a shame, it's a it's that he's not lauded more, and I hopefully I'm sure he will be. But and you're a pretty good songwriter yourself, Pete. So. But uh, so I'd like to thank thank you, P- Peter, Deborah, Steve, and Pete for coming in. Please give them a round of applause. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, it was uh, uh, that was great, wasn't it? Because you know. It was a lovely, sweet tri- tribute, and I think it got uh, you got a sense of who the man was. And uh, I hope it would be. I hope it's worthy of him, and I hope it would be the Catholic, the Catholic, no, the catalyst for uh, something else, maybe a documentary or about not just Phil, but um, the uh, radiator, some space, the band itself, and uh, they are um, have continued without Phil as a trouble pilgrims so yeah check them out as well there's a great website a radiators website with loads of information and a timeline on and lyrics to songs and some uh, uh songs as well on that it's a really 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 good website really well put together and just really easy to to get around and some brilliant information and there's a lot you know what i've been thinking about that time but when there's a uh, Radiators are an amazing band, and there was a few others that perhaps people are beginning to forget. And uh, like Micro Disney, another amazing Irish band. I'd love to do something about them. And uh, with another band called Five Good Into the Sea, who are incredible. But you know, that's uh, we'll talk about that some other time. So um, uh, yeah, so uh, thanks for uh, listening in, and remember uh, uh, some kind of. Uh, uh, Five, re- review or star thing please so uh, that would help me and uh, if you want to leave feedback as well you can uh, follow me on Twitter if you're on Twitter at Joe Rooney 1 and you leave feedback that way or you can get me on uh, a website uh, Joe Rooney Comedian dot com and you can email me there if you want and you want to ask questions or leave any feedback and uh, I'm on Instagram if you're on that Joe Rooney Comedian and Facebook obviously but you know uh, yeah uh, as much feedback as possible it's nice to get a bit of feedback and you can check out my dates as well because you know I'm a stand up comedian I'm all over the country uh, say in October you know I'm in uh, doing the uh, Galway Comedy Carnival but I'm in different um, venues around the country like the Pochin still uh, way out west Um, I know I'm doing a place called Cocklands on the 3rd of October in Cork on a Tuesday night, <laughs> uh, I'm always doing 
the improv on a uh, on a Monday night in the international bar. Well, I don't. I mean, I'll do maybe two or three Mondays of that a week, but it's always on every Monday night, and it's a brilliant gig. Yeah, improvised comedy. Uh, so it's not. It's different every week, and it's just brilliant. And uh, and all my dates would be on my website, or I put them up on Instagram. Or, you know, I put them. And I'm an oh, and I'm award winning comedian. So I never even mentioned this on my podcast, but I was voted. Uh, Pure M Awards uh, Best Comedian 2017 So I mean I'm a, I'm the best comedian Of 2017 S- So um, Get me Get get to one of my gigs Because You want to do it 2017 Because in 2018 I, w- I, I don't know if I'll be the best comedian anymore I'm not sure if they Strip me Of that title The minute The bells ring On New Year's Eve they come around to the house and just take your fucking crown off you and beat you up and leave. Uh, so that's that's it, yeah. Um, thank you if it's your first time listening. Thank you, yeah. And there's lots more. Uh, there's, there's loads of interviews with comedians and some of them you may not recognise them, but they could be bloody good interviews. Yeah. There's ones, you know, with uh, Willie White is, if you don't, haven't heard of him, he's a brilliant story, brilliant life story. Uh, there's the one with Dave McSavage was controversial, of course. And he is. Uh, John Connors, the actor uh, and writer of Cardboard Gangsters, is a brilliant chat with him. One with Culture Reardon is really good. I mean, there's lots of really good. Anne Gildee from the Nulas, an absolutely brilliant interview. And then there's the obvious ones that you recognise the people, the famous people. The famous people makes the other people sound unfamous. They're not. They are famous too, but there's the ones, you know, the people always, yeah, the Des Bishop and Neil Delmers and all that malarkey. So, uh, yeah, you know what? I'm going to, I'm going to let you go. So, thanks for listening. Thanks for subscribing. See you soon. Okay. Bye now. (laughs) Bridge Bank offers end-to-end escrow and a digital paying agent solution for servicing M&A transactions with optimal speed and transparency. Benefit from our expertise and in-depth offerings. Bridge Bank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. Bridge Bank, be bold, venture wisely.